Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith, and thank you for listening. Now, David is not here once again. Last week he was at the L.A. Film Fest. Uh, This week he is out of town um, for a couple of days, and the days in which he could have recorded, I actually have family in town, so I would not be available to record. So, once again, it's me by myself. Uh, Not really. I do have a guest, but we'll get to him in a second. Uh, First things first, guys, I need to tell you about... Hit, successfully funded on Kickstarter earlier this, earlier this year, is the de- a, the debut book from Gentleman Baby Comics. It is the story of Connor Connolly, a hitman from Boston sent to kill two people in Arkansas. But when it's time to pull the trigger, Connor discovers all is not as it seems. For your copy, go to GentlemanBabyComics.com and buy a physical copy for $5 or a digital copy for 3 also, for any Florida listeners, come see Gentleman Baby Comics at Florida Supercon in Miami from July 4th through the 7th. You can find all this information and more at facebook.com slash gentlemanbabycomics. So, uh, also wanted to tell you about Tweaked. So, if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you can get uh, some professional-level earbuds at a low, low price. And if you type in the word pretension, uh, you will get, I believe, 30% off. So, And uh, a pro- some of the proceeds from that go to uh, help Battleship Pretension. So we really appreciate that as well. Uh, also, I forgot to tell I forgot to tell you guys this uh, last week, but I uh, wanted to remind you guys that we do have a premium episode available for only $1.29 that features us talking with uh, comedian Bill Dwyer. And that was a lot of fun, and it's Bill Dwyer at his Bill Dwyerist. And uh, so you can go to battleshippretension.com and there will be a, a ad on the a skyscraper ad on the side with Bill's big smiling face. Just click on that and that'll take you where you need to go. So uh, and then I also wanted to uh, say uh, for the meetup at Comic-Con uh, Dublin Square, the name I could not remember last week. Uh, that is where we will be meeting. So at eight o'clock on July 18th. So um Dublin Square, free drinks, come and meet uh, me and David, uh, the people from Criterion Cast, and the people from Warner Archive. All right. I think that covers everything. So we do have a guest, by we I mean me, but you know what, you you guys as well. He's your guest, as well as mine. Uh, He's been on the show previously, but it's been a while since he's been on. Uh, It is a, uh, he's a comedian and uh, fellow podcaster now, Uh, Paul Gilmartin, Paul. How you doing? I'm good, Tyler. Thanks for thanks for having me. I love the topic uh, that you're having me on for. I I, uh, I picked it uh, specifically for you, so because we hadn't really talked about it on the show before. But uh, and you know what occurred to me just as just as uh, you started talking for for uh, savvy listeners, anybody who happens to listen to other podcasts in the BP podcasting fleet, at the end you'll hear a little uh, stinger there, featuring our own Paul Gilmartin saying this program is a proud member of the uh, uh, Battleship Pretension podcasting fleet. And so uh, if anybody was able to catch that, then uh, good for you. And in the meantime, Paul, thanks for doing that. Yeah, my, so, my pleasure. My but, pleasure. Uh, we liked the idea of it just of it being a previous guest, someone who had the ability to record, but never calling attention to who it might be. Mm-hmm. So, and you do a fair amount of voiceover well, elsewhere. My, my uh, open and close of, of my show has... Um, montages of guests mm-hmm. little clips of them sharing usually you know some defining moment in their life or their recovery or is there anything for me in there there isn't but there could have been oh okay there Fair could enough. have been so and that actually and that leads me into uh into this which is um 
So since Paul was last on, he had done uh, our live show, but this is the first his first time back on the show since his first appearance. And since then, Paul has started a podcast of his own, which has been running for a while now, which should speak to mm-hmm. how long it's been since you've been on. Um, Paul, tell us about your podcast. It's uh, it's called The Mental Illness Happy Hour, and it's it's not a comedy podcast, although there's moments of organic humor in it. And it's a one-on-one conversation between myself and somebody else who has some type of battle in their head, be it something from their past or something that they're currently uh, battling with. And it doesn't have to be a clearly defined mental illness. It can just be, you know, the struggle to find peace in their in their life. Um, but oftentimes it is somebody who's um, has something that's been clinically diagnosed um, or some type of trauma from their from their past. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, most people find that that some type of large trauma from childhood um, usually results in in some type of you know depression, anxiety, self-loathing. Um, I think it's rare the person that that can kind of escape um, childhood trauma and, and not have it kind of bleed into their, their adult life. But the podcast in a nutshell is, um, it's not the solution. I, you know, I say it's not the doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. It's, I'm not, I'm not there as, as an expert at all. I'm one of, I'm one of the, the listeners in terms of, you know, where I'm at and, dealing with with my issues and my stuff and I think that's one of the things that people like about it is it's one of the reasons why I created it is I felt like something in the it's listed in self-help category which makes me might kind of roll my eyes because you know that brings up the image of Dr. Phil talking down to somebody or yep. somebody some new age person talking about crystals and yeah. Sedona and more power to you if that stuff works for you, but that never worked for me. It either felt too condescending or too um, precious. And, and I thought, there, there's a gap here that needs to be filled um, by just talking how I talk with my friends about it, mm-hmm. which is sometimes irreverent, sometimes sad, sometimes funny. And I and it did start out early on as being mostly comedians because those were your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think it doesn't hurt to acknowledge that often the people that seem like they've got it most worked out, like the people who can crack a joke faster or better than anybody else, it's very easy to look at them and say, oh, well, I mean, they don't have anything wrong with them. Otherwise, how could they be so funny? Um, and so in those early days, especially, you um, clearly never shared a comedy condo with a well, comedian. Was, yeah. And also, I mean, and I saw, I saw Lenny with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. I know that it's, it doesn't go that way, yeah. but, uh, but instinctively, I think people look at that and they say, well, how, how could they have any problems? And it, and it really goes into, into detail about that. And, uh, with, with, a, I mean, it really, you run the gamut. I mean, you've got, you've got like Adam Carolla in there saying some stuff that is, that is fascinating. Uh, I may not always agree with it, but it's fascinating, which could basically go with almost anything Adam Carolla says and me. But, um, and I actually, I, uh, I saw him once at, uh, 
uh, at the podcastathon. He was uh, hanging out in the uh, bar next door, and so uh, and I was taking a break from the podcastathon. I was eating some French fries, and so I happened to talk to him. And I said, and I thought, hey, he and I have almost nothing in common. But you know what? We were both guests on Mental Illness <laughs> Happy Hour, and so I talked to him about that, and uh, he didn't seem particularly impressed. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So um, and as I so I I guess I've uh, let the cat out of the bag there. Um, I actually was a guest on Mental Illness Happy Hour early on. Yeah, um, I think you were one of my first 10 guests. Yeah, I think I was number seven or eight. Yeah. And uh, and I volunteered for it, which may sound a little strange, but it, what it came about from was the idea of, uh, of uh, I had somewhat recently at the time been diagnosed with uh, clinical depression, and I wanted to talk about what it, what it was like to be diagnosed as something like this in the in the Christian community and the kind of support you can get from that, some of the support you maybe don't get, uh, and you'll you'll find some of that uh, some of that tone that you were talking about in this in the some of the self help movement of like, well, you should just do this. It's like, well, if I could have, mm-hmm. uh, do, do you think I haven't tried that? You know, <laughs> but then you also get a lot of people who are very supportive and uh, and people that don't understand mental illness will often say, well, look at all the stuff that you have to be grateful for, and and my response to that is comparing situational sadness. To clinical depression is like saying that the Olive Garden represents Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the same. I mean, they've got those breadsticks that I like, um, and that's pretty much all I like from Olive Garden. But um, yeah, it's uh, it is fascinating just to run across certain attitudes. And again, the vast majority of response that I got from the show was was very positive. Although it was interesting. Um, how because uh, uh, things wound up getting a little uh, churchier on your show than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I did not expect to head down certain roads, uh, and we did. And that was, I was, if you listen to the show, you'll hear me not being prepared for that, but still being like, okay, organic conversation, here we go. And uh, and I did occasionally get emails from people saying, being very positive once again, but also saying, also being quick to say, ah, that organized religion stuff. It's like. Okay, you didn't need to say that, but that's fine. I appreciate you well, kind of undercutting it a little bit. What I liked is is I think you're a great example, and sadly, in my opinion, in in my experience, a minority of my experience with people who call themselves Christians, and and that I found you to be open minded, to have a sense of humor about it, and to not use your Christianity as something to feel superior to other people about, but to um, connect to the world around you in a way that has more compassion. And, and ultimately, if if all Christians were like that, or the majority of Christians were like that, I don't think organized religion would have a bad name. Well, thank you very much for that. That's very nice of you to say. Don't, we, don't get me wrong. I do often feel superior to others, but that's usually from an artistic standpoint. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, Okay, so uh, so people can find that at uh, Mental, mentalpod.com, or you can search it on iTunes, Mental Illness Happy Hour. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that podcast has been nominated for a podcast award in the fitness health category or whatever. It did. It actually won. So, the, it uh, won? Yeah. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. Oh, good for you. Yeah. I've been nominated four years in a row, and I'm never going to win <laughs> in the religion category because I do you not have the that. listeners. I yeah. I didn't. I didn't go to the to the event. Um, <laughs> no one goes to that event. Yeah, to my knowledge. It, plus, it's in Vegas, which I've just i've i've hit my my 
limit on on going to Vegas for a lifetime, I think. It seems somehow appropriate that the guy who runs the mental illness show would go to Vegas uh, to accept an award. Because uh, it that seems like kind of a hotbed for it, right? You would think so, but I just can't, I just can't bring myself to to go, even if it's to you know have the spotlight put on me, which God knows I love. Don't we all? Let me ask you. Okay, we've got a topic. My we'll wife get to it in a second. My wife, that? my wife hates the spotlight. I guess mine does too, actually. Yeah. Maybe that's absolutely no question about it. All right, well, it's the old joke. Of course, we get along. We're both in love with the same person. (laughs) I do have a a question before we get to the topic, which is movie related. Um, One of my one of my least favorite things, because you you know we've been talking about people who uh, who are maybe a little a little too dismissive of mental illness, maybe because they don't totally understand it, Um, and maybe because they're uncomfortable with it, because there are no easy answers, uh, but. there are two different types of dismissal that, that bother me. One is the concept of first world problems or white people problems. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I, am, I live in the first world and I'm white. So what, what business do I have being depressed is often the, the, the idea that people throw out there. And I find it so dismiss, uh, dismissive. It basically, and don't get me wrong, you know, I'm sitting in my office in my house talking to a microphone with... And I'm in a room with two computers and a television star. That's you. And so, wow, um, <laughs> that is a stretch. <laughs> you know, to be a television star, I think when you drive onto the lot, the security guard in five years should have recognized you once. Well, hey, you know, it's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but go ahead, continue. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. like uh, my, my life is pretty good by and large, and yet yeah. I still find myself with a deep, you know, bouts of. Uh, what I call melancholy, but is actually probably just depression. Um, and, uh, and so when people, and so it's not as though people who are depressed or dealing with anything, it's not that they don't, it's not like they ha- don't have an appreciation for the things they have. In fact, they wish they could appreciate them deeper. And the fact that they don't often causes more That's sadness exactly and it. that you kind of thing. Feeling of, um, that you're ungrateful for what you have. Right. And again, th- that is comparing, that is mislabeling, your depression in the in the situational uh, sadness mm-hmm. category, which is like uh, saying that a diabetic just needs some sleep. You're just tired. <laughs> you're running self. You're running yourself a little too ragged. You need yeah. to cut back on your schedule. No, it's a it's a chemical mm-hmm. um, imbalance in the brain that um, while there may be organic ways to change it, it is a an actual thing. It is not a feeling sorry for yourself though that can sometimes oh no question be be something that makes people sad but clinical depression which we're talking about is something that is is beyond um your ability to to solve on your own yeah Um, in my opinion and that's and so that was the one thing that bothers me the other thing and this is something that uh you mentioned something that kind of triggered it was the idea and it happens a lot with with i would say kids and teenagers and that sort of thing when people say, oh, he just needs attention. Mm-hmm. And using that as a reason to, A, not give them attention, and B, dismiss any possible issue they might actually run across. Uh, and I, and as somebody who, I mean, you know, I, I acted for a number of years. I have not one but two podcasts. I think I'm probably someone who likes attention. But I am also of the opinion that everyone likes attention. They may not want the spot, the spotlight, which is a little different. But I think everybody likes a good, positive 
kind of attention. They want to feel that they're heard and felt and seen and validated. Yeah. And the thing that always fascinated me when I would uh, think back on it is the idea of when someone says, oh, he just wants attention. And the, and part of me is like, yeah, but if somebody, if a kid is willing to do this, whatever it might be, you know, something acting out or whatever, if they're willing to be this socially awkward or maybe even destructive, if they're willing to do that solely for attention, then maybe we should give them some attention because that sounds extreme. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, uh, maybe in the form of help or yeah, compassion. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think they, they think that these people just want an audience. And while there are those people, I think they're the the real minority of, of people that are experiencing, um, you know, that. I'm I'm kind of at at a loss for words to to describe what it what it is. Um, the the thing that I find ironic about that is the idea that these people just want attention is if you've ever experienced clinical depression, depression being around other people often feels like sandpaper. It's the last thing you want. It you want to isolate. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes you don't have that op- that option, and so it's uh, this idea of just sort of. It is possible. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason in this case, like feeling alone in the middle of a crowded room and just, but you still have to deal with these people. And I say it as though it's disgusting to deal with them. They're perfectly nice people. But yeah, it's, uh, and so that's the thing is, so I will say, uh, because I want to transition into the episode, I will say that uh, to listeners that a lot of the, a lot of the interaction that uh, Paul and I have just had, that's kind of what the show is, Mm -hmm. is people just talking about. Sometimes based on their own experiences, sometimes based on a friend's experience, just their own their own uh, frustrations and, and their own uh, burdens and that sort of thing. And so Paul acts not as a professional or as somebody like a Dr. Phil who says, I've got it all worked out, but as a moderator and, uh, you know, uh, a, a friendly ear. Yeah, and that and sort if of thing. I remember correctly, in your ap- episode, I did what I, I like to do every once in a while, which is just throwing in a completely inappropriate joke and have an awkward silence which i think i asked you if you had fucked your mom or something yeah that was and here's the thing the awkward silence did not stem from me being offended i mean i've watched the aristoc uh, the aristocrats and i'm and I, by that time i was friends with a number of comedians so i wasn't offended it was more just okay how do i communicate that i'm not offended yeah it was a weird thing um and it always because you've mentioned that before is that being uh something you really remember from that episode and uh incidentally i do also remember it pretty sure. well myself how can you not <laughs> it's not something that's get level gets leveled at a person very often no. but uh the answer is yes i did uh one time but you know what hey <laughs> you know it's this is a non-judgment area you know but uh okay moving on um i will not say david's uh, f- uh catchphrase i will just say uh to the topic so uh knowing the paul was going to be here and knowing the uh the uh, the nature of his show and and something that he's really passionate about um I opted to go with a topic that we have not discussed and one that was actually uh, so had so much potential that when I told David that we were going to be discussing, he's like, oh, oh, I wish I could be there for that. Um, But uh, but thankfully, there's a lot of uh, subtopics within this that uh, that we can actually devote whole episodes to, uh, particularly uh, addiction. But I'll get to that in a second. So what I wanted to talk about was depictions of mental illness 
in film because it gets and in doing some research I, I looked up you know mental illness in movies and found just this giant list and I realized wow it is they they go to that well f- fairly often and right it doesn't make sense why there's a lot of drama there yeah occasionally some comedy that uh, may or may not be misguided but uh, but yeah and so I went through and looked at uh, the most common and recurring disorders that are for lack of a better term cinematic and uh and wrote down some some movies that that i saw and there are plenty of movies that i haven't seen and so i hope that this will be a uh, as complete a uh, discussion as as we can have but um but yeah so um and you said that you were excited about this topic and why why is that it let's let's start with ge- in general um in the most general sense, what is your opinion of how Hollywood treats mental illness? Badly. Badly, okay. And and inaccurately. Okay. Um, would you like to expound on that? Yeah. I okay. think they like to wrap it up in a neat little bow, um, which is one of the things that's so frustrating about living with mental illness as it, is it's, um, you know, I like to liken it to the uh, iPhone earbuds. It's constantly getting tangled up. It's <laughs> annoying. It's frustrating. Uh, and sometimes you just want a different pair of earbuds, but you're stuck with this tangled pair of earbuds that, yeah, sometimes you can untangle them and have great stretches of, of time where things are clicking and you're not struggling. But uh, other times it's it's not neatly solved. Um, it's usually something that needs to be dealt with on multiple fronts, talk therapy, uh, sometimes meds, uh, Oftentimes, it's some type of spiritual practice, uh, changing your diet, exercising. Um, it, the list goes support groups. The list goes on and on. These are all things I have to do mm-hmm. to have a shot yeah. at being happy. And I'm, I've been doing all these things for years. In the last two years, my depression has come back. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling to find a med that works. I'm still doing all these other things. And uh, I haven't listened, really enjoyed listening to music Um for, huh. t- for two years, for two years, I haven't woodworked. All of my, almost all of my other passions have gone away, except for playing hockey and watching documentaries about serial killers. <laughs> there Which, are a surprising number of them, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, there's something oddly comforting about that, <laughs> and that's the other thing that's weird about mental illness is weird things bring you comfort. Uh, wow. Uh, okay, yeah, you you pushed a button there because what's um, yours? Well, I'll tell you in a second. First, you did you did really uh, give me the opportunity to say that if you are tired of those iPhone earbuds, I've got good news for you. Tweakedaudio.com <laughs> slash pretension, 30% off. Anyway, um, yeah, no, I, when I was younger, uh, so many of my friends, and even to a certain extent now, people say, oh, I'm, I was really depressed, so I listened to this type of music, or I, I watched a movie that was uplifting. And me, I was like, man, I'm feeling down. I'm going to watch... I'm going to watch Affliction. That's what mm. I'm going to I'm going to watch. It's so funny. It was just, on last night. Oh, really? Did, yeah. you, did you watch it? I Have just watched it? like five minutes of it because I yeah. just finished watching that silent movie documentary okay. we, were, we were talking about. Yeah. It's not an easy film to watch, Affliction. But, uh, but yeah, just movies that bring you down, bring me down further. But they don't really bring me down. They remind you you're not alone. Damn right it does. No question about it. And, <laughs> just, and it astounds me. More than anything, if I were to watch a happy movie, I'm just like, Look at these happy sons of bitches. Yeah, that's how I feel. That's why I hate musicals. You're happy for no reason. 
How I dare think, you? I think you would enjoy Sweeney Todd. Do you enjoy yeah. that one? Where didn't really? No, probably not. It was dark, but there's a few. There's a few musicals I like, but uh, for the most part, I just find them. Uh, you know, you're when you live with depression, you so want to know the truth of things because mm-hmm. it's buried in there. Is this me feeling sorry for myself? Is, is this something that is beyond my control? Is this? Am I just having a bad day? Is this my depression coming back? Right. What is causing this? You don't know which animal is eating you. And that in itself contributes to your depression. You know, if you break your arm, at least you know here's what the break looks like. It's going to yeah. take this long to fix it. Yeah. But when it's something inside you that can't be defined because the brain's so complex, it, yeah. it's overwhelming on top of you having the depression to begin with. So that's... That idea of looking for truth, and and we're we're zeroing in on depression because that's something Paul and I share. But we will be talking about other things uh, over the course of the episode. Uh, but that idea of of yearning for for truth, something constant that you can kind of hitch your wagon to a little bit. It's a mixed metaphor, but um, that is something that I think is 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 completely true because, especially because we, I think we might have a, a slightly skewed view of truth. Um, and so if we see people that are happy, like suddenly the artifice of the Hollywood happy ending just gets thrown into sharp relief. And it's like, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. Come on now. Um, which whereas when something, if you watch kind of a downer movie, even if it ends on an upbeat note, if it, it feels right, you're like, that is correct. Um, I remember the, um, you know, at, shortly after my father passed away, I remember uh, there are some movies that deal with grief in a way that it compartmentalizes a little bit. And sometimes you do need to compartmentalize. But then there are other films. Uh, one that I, The one that, that got me was In the Bedroom. Did you ever see In the Bedroom? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, spoilers for a movie that's 12 years old, but uh, a major character dies in In the Bedroom, and the film was not, was not necessarily at the time billed as a grief, uh, a grief revenge drama. But uh, there's a scene where Tom Wilkinson goes into his son's room, and, and he just sits down. And so far, he's been pretty good he's been he not good but you know he's mm. he's kept it together pretty well and then he just sees little figurines that his son had undoubtedly when he was a kid and that's what does it and then i also see things like in that film um sissy spacek watching um oh what was she watching she was watching i think the daily show or she's watching some kind of late night show and just sitting there and not laughing and then we see a shot of tom wilkinson just mowing the lawn in quiet and I remember reading a review that said, why are we seeing these things? Oh, these shots God. that mean nothing. And it's like, because the son would have mowed the lawn. And now he, now the dad has to. Because what, what, what choice does he have? Because the, the mom would likely have watched this with their son. Like, it's just, it's little things like that. That's the detail and that, that you absolutely. watching it and not enjoying it because she's numb. Yeah, numb. And just, just going through, just trying to get back to the back to normalcy but also recognizing that there are practical details that now have to change and that's a film like Todd Field when I saw that I was like that's a man who either has experienced grief and, and mourning in his own life or is so intuitive that he that he understands this without having experienced it it astounded me you can feel it when you watch a movie you know the person that that made it because there's an attention to detail that somebody who hasn't lived it um, just isn't able to bring to it. And I will, I'll use this, we'll jump into, uh, into the top one here, which is, uh, depression. That's not the top one. Obsessive compulsive is the top one, but, uh, depression and how that is often uh, depicted in film. Um, 
And depression is not the most cinematic of uh, no of <laughs> of mental disorders. Probably schizophrenia, multiple multiple personality is the most cinematic. But uh, depression, because of what we've been talking about, of there's a sadness, often there's an exhaustion, there's just a quiet, you know, fl- flitting of the eyes back and forth. Uh, there's also to, rage. There's also anger, which... There's which, some of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times um, that doesn't... People don't make that connection. People that haven't lived with depression don't don't know sometimes that there can just be all of a sudden just this outburst of, of rage, Um and and there's yes, and there certainly uh, certainly was for me, and that's one that because like you're talking about putting things in a box, making them simple, and depression is you're you can't get out of bed, and so if you can't get out of bed, surely you can't muster up the energy to be furious, right? You know, but no, that's that's sometimes part of the it. anger is because you haven't been able to get out of bed, and yeah. feelings of worthlessness and life is passing you by begins to pile up and so then when you begin you begin to feel or maybe i should just speak for myself i begin to feel like the universe is shitting on me you know (laughs) that this god that i believe in um has just doesn't give a shit about me or thinks i can handle more than i can handle Mm -hmm. and it makes me angry so then when somebody treats me in a way that reinforces that like for me a big trigger of mine is when i'm playing hockey and my team is getting killed and the other team is running the score up i feel exploited i feel disrespected and it pushes it also goes back to how my mom treated me but Mm -hmm. it it pushes something in me that i have to be really aware of um when it's when it's happening because it's primal it's like i want to take people's heads off and and sometimes i i do you know i lash out i'll i'll run somebody over and it feels awesome for about 10 seconds do you ever feel like yelling shut up to uh the crowd that is cheering on your rivals yeah yeah sometimes but there's usually not a crowd it's not a lot of people show up but sometimes you know they'll have a dozen people in the stands and their cheering feels like a it's directed at they're you. They're cheering against you. Yeah, they're cheering your humiliation. Uh, that is, I'm I'm referencing a story that uh, I told David a long time ago, and that he has referenced that he has made reference to on the show because he finds it amusing, and I kind of do as well as as time has gone on. But yeah, I was playing basketball uh, when I was in like third, fourth grade, and I'm not a sports guy, uh, as the once again two movie podcasts would probably attest. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, and the other team was, uh, doing well. And, uh, and I think I had made a mistake and everyone that resulted in the other team doing well, whatever it was. And, uh, the other, and it was, you know, kids. So all the parents were there and everyone started cheering. And then I yelled, shut up as I ran across the court. And so, uh, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. But, uh, now, so I wrote down cause there, there are a few movies that deal with depression, um, but what's interesting is always, it's almost always depression paired with something else, uh, like an American Beauty, which is a movie I don't necessarily love. But, I mean, Kevin Spacey's character, he describes himself as feeling sedated, um, which sounds that sounds very familiar. Um, but that but that's also paired with the midlife crisis thing, mm-hmm. you know, and that and he kind of gets himself out of it by going against his routine. And in doing so. I don't know. I feel like it once again. It simplifies it a little bit and makes it a little easy to get out of. Well, the thing that I, that I think they all share um, 
addiction, depression, OCD, on and on and on. The thing they all share is emptiness, a mm-hmm. yawning emptiness inside that is in the driver's seat mm-hmm. that drives our actions. That's that's the one thing that reminds me that th- these are just different flavors of the of the same dish. And yeah. so the question is is how do we fill that emptiness? How do we recognize when that emptiness is in the driver's seat? Mm-hmm. You know, for me it's sometimes not until I've you know tried to take somebody's head off when I'm playing hockey mm-hmm. or uh, you know said reacted to somebody in in a way that I'm like wow that was a, that was excessive. Mm-hmm. Uh so to me it, it what what its clinical definition is is of much less importance than what that person is feeling inside, what they're mm-hmm. trying to hide from the world and how they feel about themselves as a result of it. Yeah. That's the important stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that people are afraid or unwilling or think they're being a baby if they're going to go in and and, and really look at that mm-hmm. at that stuff. Um, I was talking with my therapist about this a couple of weeks ago, and she said very few people fit the clear definition of, you know, narcissistic personality disorder or this. Yeah. But it's more important to just say, okay, this person is, you know, showing these traits. Let's get, let's get to the root of what this is. Is this a chemical thing? That right. is this something that they need to to talk through some trauma that that they've experienced? Do they need EMDR work? Mm-hmm. What 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 are the tools that we can use to to help fill that emptiness? And that I think gets glossed over sometimes when people want to present depression either in real life or in in movies as this cut and dried thing or any any mental illness as this cut and dried things because it's that tangled earbuds yeah and it and it often i remember yeah it's talking to people in the past who who were dealing with depression and and asking and and the question often gets thrown out uh previously by me and certainly not anymore is you know what are you depressed about and sometimes you can be depressed about something but Sometimes it's just there. It's just there. And movies often will, because, you know, you are telling a story and it's often a linear story. So you want to have a cause and effect. Uh, and so with American Beauty, it's just, you know, it's the middle eight. He's aware that he, his life did not turn out the way he wanted to. He's married to this woman that he doesn't love anymore. His, his daughter is uh, rebellious. So it's all, his depression seems to be in reaction to something. Same with, um, Leaving Las Vegas, which is a movie about alcoholism, but it starts with depression first. And the depression um, seems to stem from uh, professional failure and then his uh, wife leaving him. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I mean, show me an addiction that isn't related to feelings of worthlessness or emptiness. Oh, I'm sure. You know, it's... And it's... And then, oddly enough, the one that I think... And it doesn't even necessarily get it right event like the whole film doesn't necessarily get it right but it starts right i think is the beaver did you ever see the beaver i did and i so wanted to like it more than i did but it just and it you know mel brings all that baggage in his life to it yeah. you know as well which made it kind of hard but it it was just treated in a way that i appreciated that they were trying to do a movie that had a feel to it that was outside the box yeah but 
It was also outside the box of interesting <laughs> or of entertaining or yeah. being connect to connect to it in a way that moved me. It just didn't move me. I found it interesting, but I found it movie interesting um, where each character has their own quirks. And while I think the actors sell it, specifically the actor playing uh, Mel Gibson's son, who's an actor that I like, he's in the Star Trek movies and he does a pretty good job. But then also the thing that, that I liked the most and then when it deviated from this, that's when I got frustrated was the the character has a family. He is very successful, but he feels this nonetheless. And the feeling of that does not seem to stem from anything. Mm-hmm. His wife seems to be supportive. His kids don't seem pretty good for the most part. Um, and he's, again, financially very successful. And so where does it come from? Well, it comes from him but not in any kind of conscious way. And the fact that the film starts there is something that I was like, oh, this is a film that kind of understands. And then it, and then it makes things a little too It disappoints too, a you too by simple. the minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how yeah. I felt by the end. I was like, this movie got worse as it went along. Very much First so. First 15 minutes, oh, this might be kind of interesting, but it's, it just felt like a screenwriter writing about depression in a way where they, th- I don't know, it just didn't feel organic to me. It just didn't yeah. feel... And a lot, and the the weird thing is, a lot of the stuff. So for the for those that don't know, it's about this this guy who gets depressed, and then he finds a, a puppet of a beaver in a in a dumpster, and so he starts speaking, not as himself, but he keeps the beaver on his hand, and he speaks through it uh, in a kind of a weird accent, and he speaks truths through the beaver that he feels like he can't say and the truths are often about himself mm-hmm. uh and he f- and then he starts to and again it's it's interesting in a in a purely movie way no one would ever look at that except for maybe those first few minutes no one would ever look at that and say that's a guy uh, you know that that makes sense that rings true it doesn't ring true it rings movie true but not real life true and so once again you have something where they want to examine depression, but in a way that is so outlandish that I, I don't think I really don't think anybody str- struggling with depression would ever look at that and, and be encouraged by it. Mm-hmm. I think they would only ever see where it deviates from their own life. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. Some of the some of these movies that I've been talking about, you know, ordinary people features Fantastic. a number of depressed characters. Fantas- that is, I think, maybe the the best movie ever at at portraying melancholy and a family that doesn't know how to communicate especially yeah. in the suburbs that i you know i have a joke that my my family was like the movie ordinary people without the belly laugh <laughs> it's well, you know that donald sutherland gets you well judd hirsch is in it and he's yeah. kind of amusing at times uh yeah it's and that's one that i think you're you're absolutely right i think each actor is each character is so clearly defined while also seeming so recognizable, it seems like you've known them in life. Uh, each actor does a great job. Timothy Hutton won a well-deserved Oscar for it, although in the wrong category. He's clearly the lead of that film, but he was put in supporting because he's young. Um, Mary Tyler Moore does some of the best work ever. She, she, uh, To me, she's what anchors that movie because yeah. she, even though Timothy Hutton's the, the star of it, it's she is the nucleus of the sickness in that family. Yes. And... What I love about that movie and how it portrays depression and that sick family dynamic is it's not 
caused by something. It's the absence of something. It's mm-hmm. the absence of nurturing. It's the absence of communication. Yeah. And they portray that in a way that is so deft and subtle. The way she's constantly organizing mm-hmm. the, the things on the table um, where nothing is ever right, where yeah. she just wants the picture to be hurry up, you know, hurry up and take the picture because yeah. it's unbearable for her to be around you know, sitting in a picture pretending to smile. Yeah. And that says so much to me. And it, and it it lets you, it does what, what my favorite entertainment does is it lets me be a detective while I'm watching it instead of handing it to me with a ton of insert shots of, it's, it'll, it, you know, it'll be that master shot where you can kind of look for things and put things together and go, oh, oh okay, now I'm beginning to understand why this, why this kid's so so depressed? And the beauty of it is how nu- how nuanced it is. Um, specifically with her character, all the characters, but her character specifically. When I first saw, I was probably sixteen, and as I would venture to say, it was the case with me with any movie, any great movie I watched when I was sixteen. I I oversimplified it in my own mind, and I made her out to be the villain. And wh- and I think what you I think you touched on something perfectly, which is she's not the villain; she's merely the core. And if of she his issues of his well, it just maybe the family in general. Maybe if she started to change a little bit, it would inspire others. But at the same time, she's being hurt as well. She is also in pain, and that's something I've come to realize as time has gone on. There's a great little monologue in which she talks about. I think somebody confronts her about trying to be more open and all that. And she says, that's all well and good. But here's the thing. I want you to make sure they ne- that they, in reference to their kids, that they never get hurt. That they never, you know, that they're never in danger. You do all this. Make sure they always get to school on time. You do all this. And then come back to me and tell me to relax. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, and she delivers it so well. And in that moment. She doesn't seem sympathetic, but that is a very sympathetic and a very relatable yeah. argument. You know, I don't have any children. I have a wife and a cat, and that overwhelms me at times. And I act as though I can't do certain things or act certain ways because of this. And it's something, it's a, it's a moment where she actually has one, it's one of those rare moments when she actually comes out and says what she thinks mm-hmm. and how she feels. And, and I think one of the reasons, it, it, two things, and... Yeah, you also Donald Sutherland's character also has to take the blame because he's oh, yeah. co-signing a lot of her her bullshit. And mm-hmm. while one parent can't make up for the lack of love from from the other parent, um, they can hold that that spouse accountable for things that they are or not Absolutely. are not doing. Um, but the thing that I think made that one of the reasons why Mary Tyler Moore was so fantastic in that, if you've ever listened to an interview with her. Um, she had this really traumatic event happen to her when she was a kid where her mom basically let her left her in the care of a pedophile for like a weekend and this guy like got in her bed and and her mother just basically threw her to the wolves hmm. um she doesn't say necessarily why her mother did that, but that kind of a betrayal. Um, you, you know, she's she's tapping into something there that she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't have to be big or broad with that anger. Yeah, she can do that anger and 
moving the pens or yeah. hurry up and take this picture or, or, or whatever, whatever it is. And it's also maybe an instance of her try, in her performance trying to understand her mother and trying to understand how could somebody get to this point where they are so – where they can't – deal with this horrible thing that has happened. And and I think she gets that across. And, and thankfully, she has that monologue to work with in which she finally reveals some of her motivation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's a movie. That, and even then, I think there is a very clear event, which is the, the death of a son and the attempted suicide of, an, of another. There are clear major catalysts that start something. But what I like is that those are not viewed as... Uh, the beginning they're the catalyst for the story but they're not the catalyst for the sadness they're mm-hmm. viewed as a result of the sadness maybe not that i mean not the yeah. boat accident i mean that's an accident but like yeah and so i feel like that's a film that that really does it right and that's and it's a film that as time has gone on uh you know film students look down on it because it beat raging bull uh for best picture and Maybe it and it probably didn't deserve to, and Scorsese probably deserved to win Best Director over Robert Redford, but as and that that often happens is, but as time has gone on, I think we need to revisit Ordinary People. And I think the, one of the reasons why people probably voted for it is it reminded them of of their family family dynamic. You know, when I first saw that movie, I felt like Mary Tyler Moore was the villain because I hadn't confronted how my mom never saw me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, as I dealt with that and went through therapy and support groups and eventually was able to see what she was trying to do and how screwed up her childhood was, Mm -hmm. I then began to look at my mom with more uh, compassion. And I feel that way about Mary Tyler Moore's character. Oh, yeah. Now, so it's interesting how we can, as our life changes, how we feel about movies change. Oh, no question. And I think some of it just has to do with adulthood. You just become an adult. You get all these, you know, not crushing, but you just, you got to pay the rent. You got to do all this. And suddenly you realize, oh, I've been so busy doing things that I've, I might have forgotten to care about the people I genuinely love in the meantime. And in that moment, you're like, oh, geez, maybe Mary Tyler Moore is not so much the villain here. Maybe she's a person. Maybe this uh, is just a dynamic that yeah. just is. Yeah. And just and left untended for long enough, it becomes this this mm-hmm. thing. So um, okay, so I want to move on. And, uh, and by the way, that my grandmother was the Mary Tyler Moore character. My grandmother was. She would she would move things very emotionally, withholding. Never mm-hmm. saw her really express joy or compassion. And that was my mom's mom. Mm-hmm. And so I got to see, you know, that everything I, needs to be just so. Everything needs to be just so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I will use that as a transition into mm-hmm. the next one that shows up a lot in film, which is obsessive compulsive. Um, that shows up in. A number of films, but I'll, I'll focus in on three uh, because it's something that has come about pretty recently, probably in the last 20 years, as some, as fodder for film. Uh, one is As Good As It Gets, which I think maybe makes it a little too easy at times. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the movie, um, but and there's really only one or two moments when we really feel like, oh, this guy, he, he can't help it. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the time, it just seems like almost a charming quirk, yeah. uh, almost ex- almost eccentric. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's only one point, and it's when, um, and I don't remember exactly. I think it's that he no longer has the dog, and he has grown a, he's grown attached to the dog, and now the dog is not with him. And you see him 
and I'm not sure even if that's the case. It might have something to do with Helen Hunt. Either way, something emotional is happening inside him, and you see him standing at the door, like breathing heavily, and he just do he's doing the lock as he always does. But then he he stops for a moment, breathes again, and does it again. And you get the impression, oh, he's going to be doing this for a while. This is the only thing he can do. Mm to manage the emo- the extreme emotions the the complicated emotions he's can he will simplify it by focusing in on this very simple thing doing the lock back and forth so i would have liked to have known where his ocd came from what what happened in yeah. his life that's why that's why i like um the other ocd one that you you have listed um which is uh the aviator oh yeah and there's a very subtle moment in the beginning of that movie that most people miss which I think, and I haven't seen in a while. Does it have to do with his, with his mother? I believe the right? way she bathes. Him. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. And she lingers on his genitals when yeah. she, and he. You can see he he kind of reacts. Yeah. A little bit, and I can't tell you how many people. Um, we have surveys on the website for my for my podcast where people fill out their shame and their secrets their deepest darkest things Mm -hmm. and how it's affected them and their sexuality um well let's put it this way you can oftentimes connect how it affects their sexuality and what they do and the number of people who were sexualized by a parent and feel like they're making too big of a deal of it it comes out in ways that are so destructive and they blame themselves, and they can't see that it was a result of being treated like an object by yeah. by a parent of their not feeling protected. And it's uh, if he hadn't included that moment in there, and I loved how subtle it was. Yeah, it's very small, very small. But those of us who have been sexualized by a parent like mm-hmm. me, it it said everything because I know what that feels like, mm-hmm. and I know how much it has affected affected me and in the movie the fact that it is subtle implies it, it might also it might be viewing it the way the character himself sees it yes. it could have been bigger than that but he doesn't see it that way he just takes note mm-hmm. that that happened but chooses not to remark on it in his own mind better to just let it pass yeah but it comes but obviously it comes out in other ways yeah um and just the general feeling of being not clean mm-hmm. and that sort of thing and so um so yeah, and it's just, uh, and then the other one, yeah, the aviator. I think that especially, oh, the the part that gets me. That's the thing is when dealing with obsessive compulsive, um, which that was Scorsese, right? Aviator Scorsese, yeah. as good as it gets is uh, James L. Brooks, and then Matchstick Men, which is the other one we'll talk about, is uh, Ridley Scott. But um, I've not seen Matchstick Men. Okay, it's that one is that one is good it's interesting but what i was what i was going to say is that i feel like the nature of this it, obsessive compulsive i feel like it's almost like the the concept of hoarding that if you're going to show it you need to show that this is not f- funny mm-hmm. it might start funny but it doesn't end and funny. it might have funny moments yeah yeah absolutely and it and it doesn't match stick man it doesn't as in as good as it gets but i mean in the aviator Underneath when he's is deep pain yeah when deep, he's deep washing pain. his hands and washes this and with and gets the skin off of his hands 
like that moment like oh that's okay this is worse than i thought it was like yeah it's probably going to be worse than than you think it is and probably worse than movies show it um and matchstick men it does seem to it goes to what you were talking about the idea of filling this void because this character is a con artist and he does not morally feel right in what he is doing and so it comes out in these other ways these these psychological ways of, of making sure everything is just right and maybe it's maybe it's the line is drawn too clearly between the two but it goes a lot of it goes to what you were talking about is just a desire to have some kind of constant and he has no morality that he can cling to so he'll cling to this and uh, it's Nicolas Cage who's really good at showing different mm-hmm. types of mental illness. So there's this, um, you know, when you bury pain in the body or the or the psyche, it's going to come out mm-hmm. in another way. And that's what most people that have never really delved deep into stuff that has happened to them, um, and suddenly went, "Oh, that's why this thing that I do is so." related to this you begin then begin to realize that it's going to come out yeah it's just not going to come out in a way that you expect it to right no it's nothing is nothing is that clean and i had a i had a counselor who once who said uh he apologized for how easy this phrase was but it's he wanted it to be easy so it would be memorable which was if it's hysterical it's historical Mm -hmm. if you are reacting in a way to something that you feel like well this my reaction seems kind of strange mm-hmm. here. Uh, then chances are there's something in your past, whether it be something that uh, that happened to you or maybe something you've done but you never actually wanted to deal with the ramifications of, and now it's coming out because there's something, it's firing in your brain. Some connection was made between the two, even if it doesn't seem obvious. And, and you know, for me, I just made that connection three, four weeks ago. Mm. 50 years old. I've been playing hockey for 42 years <laughs> and experiencing those those moments. And I just finally went, oh, I feel exploited. Hmm. And the most traumatic moments in my life were feeling exploited by my mom. Hmm. Man, Ugh, I got to get I got to start listening to your show again. I haven't listened to it in a while. I apologize. Um, and we do need to move on. And I may wind up kind of skipping around here a little bit to the ones that, frankly, I find most interesting. Um so, uh, I'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about schizophrenia and then we'll talk about dissoci- dissociative identity disorder because the two are often mixed up. Um, and, but, and by the way, schizophrenia is often used when looking at mental illness scientifically. Um, it's often the most helpful one because it's the, the closest one that has a binary Hmm. feel to it where it's almost like an on and off switch where there isn't the uh, shades of gray like there is with depression mm-hmm. um and it's also the most clearly the most cinematic of oh yeah i mean you've got hallucinations what's so, real what isn't you can yeah. reveal something at the end yeah um and it's probably the only one i think that there's really nothing funny about it because it's it's the biggest load to bear of people that are stricken with mental illness it it truly can ruin lives oh yeah especially if un- undiagnosed and just and so and you're you're absolutely right what is real there's uh, it, there's often a reveal there at the end um and so i'll bring up a few and uh and by the way many people are able to treat it and have fully mm-hmm. fully functioning lives. Ellen Sachs, who's a um, uh, 
professor at USC has written uh, about it and is speaks really eloquently about it. Um, she's a great example of she takes her meds and her her, her life is fine. But people yeah. that there are a lot of people that are um, not high functioning uh, schizophrenics. Well, and I and so I want to compare two two films because I don't want to talk about every film on the list, but I'll talk about A Beautiful Mind and Spider. A Beautiful Mind is a perfectly fine film. Once again, winner of Best Picture. I loved it. You loved it. Loved it. I Cried actually, like a baby. <laughs> there's a, there's a few things I didn't like about it, but that's the thing is I can't. There's some you know film people that hate it, but they probably hate anything Ron Howard makes mm-hmm. because it's mainstream and successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and the acting is good. That was back in the heyday of Russell Crowe's uh, acting career uh, when he could do no wrong. Um, before Les Miserables came along, um, although I defend him in that film. Um, but uh, the thing that got me about that film was that it seemed too neat. I mean, like, the idea of not knowing what is real, what isn't, talking to people that aren't there only to reveal that they actually aren't there, uh, and and just having this guy... And sure, I mean, you know, they show electric shock therapy. That's not fun to, sh- to see. But it, it all makes it seem... It makes it all seem so accessible and so easy to digest. Am I am I am I overstating it? Uh, no, I mean, you you like the film. I, I do, but what I connected to, you know, because I think we all filter stuff through our own experience. You know, is you know exemplified by the movie Ordinary People and how mm-hmm. I viewed it one way and then later a different way. What touched me so deeply about that movie was the struggle. Mm-hmm. I'm not schizophrenic. I've never had delusions uh, per se, like like this person did, but the struggle to know what is real, yeah. um, to know where the truth lies, that I related to. And the thing that I that actually just broke the floodgates open for me when I was watching it was how his wife stood by him. And it reminded me yeah. of, of my wife who stood by me and had to live with a depressed person for 25 years. And I suddenly, I don't know, it it, it made me appreciate on a deeper level what a burden it's been on her to live with this person who's not easy to live with it kills me that i just now thought of the movie take shelter did you see take shelter Mm -hmm. holy crap you will it's exactly what you're talking about and it's a film that brought me to tears for exactly the same reason uh michael shannon an actor who thankfully is starting to get his due um He's good in Revolutionary Road, actually, as well. So good. He's the heart of that movie, I think. Yeah. Which should tell you something about the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, he's just this blue-collar guy with a, a wife and a daughter, and he's starting to experience these things that may be visions, or he's very aware that his uh, mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was younger, and now he's starting to think maybe some of it has to do with that. Um and so he's trying to manage it. His wife is trying to be supportive. And by the way, he's trying to manage, uh, manage it alone for a while. And uh, and so the but then he eventually he has to tell her and they they try to make they try to make a go of it. And she is so, played by Jessica Chastain. I think it's her best performance ever. I think she's amazing. Eh, Zero Dark Thirty is pretty damn good. But anyway, um but there's a scene in that you know speaking of of 
relating to our own lives. And I did a more than one lesson on take shelter. So I tell this story and, uh, and it's an okay story to tell. Uh, I wanted to make sure I ran it by everybody, but, um, uh, I went and saw the Avengers last year and I had seen it before. And then I saw it, uh, again with my wife. She had not seen it. And we saw it at this theater mid afternoon. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Spoilers. Yeah. Okay. The heroes do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, Iron Man does not get killed. Uh, but I guess Iron Man three spoils that. But, uh, Anyway, so there's a obviously a big fight at the end, okay? And throughout the movie, these kids have been just running around the movie theater. And by kids, I mean probably 14, 15. Old enough that I call them kids, but they're responsible for their behavior. And so uh, my wife went and got the manager, and as if they could sense what was happening, they then calmed down and sunk into their seats in a different part of the theater. Manager couldn't find him, so then he leaves. Then they immediately start jumping around, climbing over seats. And then finally, during the big... Uh, action sequence at the end uh, the uh, one of the kids stands up with a cell phone uh, to his ear and starts talking into it I don't know why he stands up except to maybe gotta piss us off me. on purpose You've gotta be kidding me so finally I'm like you know what I'm gonna say some of these kids and they're in the very front row I'm in the very back row and so I is get it crowded up. the theater what was that is it crowded it's not crowded I say okay. probably 40% full okay and so I uh, I trudge to the beginning to the to the front of the theater and I'm gonna say hey guys can seriously can you please stop it so i get there and then i see all three of them have their phones and i don't know what happened but suddenly my plan went out the window and instead of saying guys seriously can you stop it i yelled louder than i've ever yelled in my life shut the fuck up or leave and the fact that they're in the front row so now everyone in the theater saw me did anybody applaud no well uh, no they didn't uh uh, the kids were certainly frightened. Uh, they, they, they looked, and uh, and immediately I see Jen stand up and leave because mm-hmm. she's she is worried. Yeah. And uh, so then I go out and uh, and uh, she's you know she's a little embarrassed. She's a little mortified as I as makes sense. But as time as the as the day went on. Um, she was very supportive of me because I was like, how did that happen? Why did I let that happen? Come on. People have talked to movies before. Come on. And I was really feeling down on myself. And then she put aside her own social embarrassment and was like really loving and supportive of me. And that is so similar to a scene in Take Shelter that I will not say because a lot of people haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. So I won't spoil it. But basically, there's a public outburst. Mm. And you don't know what she's going to do because this might be the last straw. Um, but she winds up being supportive of him and it's such a tearful moment made all the more so because of that thing that I experienced and, um, and that, and any movie that shows the, cause that's, cause the idea of mental illness of any kind is that you will feel alone and any movie that shows you are loved, you may not know it, you're loved by a spouse, by friends, by family in general and they will come alongside you. That's that's a film that just and you know what? Maybe it's not always true, but damn it, sure it sure. These are the movies. There's yeah. a, you know that's we go there to feel. Yeah. So yeah, how, why would you blow that opportunity to show yeah. the uh, to to show what it feels like when that person's emptiness is filled filled briefly? Yeah, you you gotta see Take Shelter. You will love it. Okay, and and this deals with the uh, dissociative disorder as well. Um, and I will bring up the movie Spider, directed by David Cronenberg and features uh, Ray Fiennes. And this is, is one that a good where, movie. Yes, it's a great movie. Love the fly. 
<laughs> I know it's that's a dated thing to say, but no, The Fly is my favorite Cronenberg movie. Yeah, I thought that should have been nominated. I thought Jeff Goldblum should have won Best Actor oh, for that. No question about it. And those effects are just, and that's an interesting metaphor for uh, degenerative illness and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and sticking by someone who's who's dealing with that. But uh, but Spider is all about mental illness. It's about a guy who has who was just let out of a mental hospital. Um, and he is, I mean, he is broken. He is clearly schizophrenic. There's no question about it. Um, and, and the thing about the movie, I, I know a lot of people who say it wasn't very satisfying and it's like, yeah, but there's no clear beginning, middle and end. It's not a three act structure. It basically, this guy is just hallucinating about his memories and about his mother and mm-hmm. a sexualized thing there. It's fascinating. Um, and I highly recommend it. Wonderful performance by Ray Fiennes. Um, and uh, we're, we just passed an hour, so I'm going to try and uh, hit a couple other things. Um, I'll talk about dis- dissociative identity disorder, which is otherwise known as multiple personality disorder. That one shows up a lot because it gives actors the opportunity to play multiple roles. Mm, which I think is like al- almost as much of a softball on a tee as playing uh, somebody who is uh, mentally handicapped. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, this will give me lots of little bells and whistles to oh. act on, but is there anything underneath it? Yeah, and that's and that's the thing is uh, I haven't seen uh, all of the ones on my list. I never saw Sybil with Hall- with Sally Field. Did you ever see that one? I did. Okay. Is that good? Because I know she's, there are literally it's dated, many. It's dated, but it's, you know, the abuse is pretty horrific, and it's a, it, it is a real thing. I don't know if it holds up, but mm. it was... It was a pretty powerful movie when I when I saw it, and I didn't know anything. I was I think I was you know adolescent when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I enjoy Sally Field. I feel like I should revisit. I should visit that film, not revisit it. Um, so I will say that uh, Psycho I think does it pretty well. Yeah, um, makes it gen- genuinely horrific. Makes Norman Bates a character that we are sympathetic to. And speaking of a uh, domineering mother, mm-hmm. um, and while they maybe uh, put too much of a too much of a button on it there at the end with the psychiatrist that we've never seen before who comes out and practically looks at the camera and explains what just happened. Um, but aside from that, I think it's a really interesting... It's based on Ed Gein, too, so how can it yeah. not have the details that make you go... It's so uncomfortable. It feels real. Um, and Anthony Par- Anthony Perkins does such a great job mm-hmm. of just kind of creating a character who definitely you can see something's going on there, just all these little ticks and stuff like that. Um, but I also this is one where, yeah, you get actors who can get an Oscar pretty or at least a nomination pretty easily. Uh, but then you also get there's a there's kind of a cool factor there, mm-hmm. and you get a movie like Fight Club, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, and that's, I just want to finish one one point. Go right the, ahead. The, the thing about giving an actor something that's easy to play, I think the perfect movie, and it also has to do with with mental illness, is Girl Interrupted. And Which I never I, saw. So, um, Angelina Jolie won an Academy Award for mm-hmm. that, and I think doing the easiest thing in the world that to, which is to as an actor is to expl- um, display anger. Mm-hmm. Winona Wa- Ryder. I think is was the anchor of that movie, and she had to react to all these people and display much more nuance, much mm-hmm. a much bigger accomplishment in my mind. But oftentimes in Hollywood, you know, if you break shit, people think that that's that's acting. Oh yeah, and and anger can be hard to play 
because you know an, an actor has to basically let loose which is not an easy thing to do but at the same time yeah it will overshadow more subtle performances and yeah. that sort of thing and i never saw a girl interrupted yeah sorry sorry for interrupting but no I, that's I, perfectly I just... fine um but yeah, uh, so Fight Club, it, it, it compartmentalizes it really easy. Did you ever see Fight Club? I did, and I think that's such a small part of it. It's almost like a just a little button thrown on there at yeah. the end. That it, I, it, You I, mentioned earlier with the beaver, like seeing the writer. And I feel like I probably, I feel like I see the writer in mm-hmm. Fight Club quite a bit, um, whether it be the original novelist or the or the writer of the film. But that's I, one that I just find not, not I very... I see that more as, as um, that movie is more about masochism and and sadism than i do about and nihilism and nihilism and and wanting to connect to people in any way that you can trying yeah. to fill that emptiness yeah and i like it on that level because it like it's, it just shows how when a human being feels empty the lengths they will go to to fill that emptiness oh yeah and i loved it for for that reason but i did too feel like at the end like it was just i don't know it, it felt screenwritery yeah and that's the th- yeah when when dealing with the depression of the main character and then you realize it's more it's more than that um when dealing with that kind of depression that he can't sleep he can't he just feels numb like we were talking about earlier that i think does a gr- they do a great job with that um and, and the idea of yeah. cinematic in an awesome awesome way that oh, doesn't yeah. feel um, that it felt organic. Yeah, and the idea—I mean—you hear about people who like cut themselves, and and so the idea of getting in a fight and getting a, a tooth knocked out because, well, I feel alive. Yeah, and it's better than what I was feeling, and uh, I feel like the film does that well. Um, and then, uh, but then another one that bothers me. Here's the thing: I find it funny a lot of the time. But me, myself, and Irene. I love that movie. Not not because I feel like it's an accurate portrayal of mental illness, just because it's so funny. Yeah. And where, where he's wrestling with the cow. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that is Jim Carrey at his best, man. Where he he takes something to... He, he commits so hard to the joke. I have so yeah. much respect for his ability to commit to, to jokes. And the physical bit where one personality knocks out the other one and is dragging it, and it literally looks... Like he is being dragged by something invisible, and I have no idea how he's able to do that with his feet being on the ground. He's a genius. It's it's pretty brilliant, and yeah, I mean, obviously, it may, it's like I, when watching, it, I was like, I have to assume this is not how multiple personality yeah. works. But you know what? It's the Fairley Brothers. It's Fairley Brothers, and yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, that that is like where if you're going to use it as a device, you better really use it. And I feel like, <laughs> hey, they earned they earned a way, yeah. you know, to portray it in a, in a one-dimensional way plus yeah, it's a comedy so you know it's yeah it's not gonna here's a here's a movie that i have a problem with where they portray something in a comedic way is i don't know the name of it but the adam sandler movie where he had sex is like a i don't know a 13 year old with oh his that's teacher. My, that's my boy which i never which yeah. i didn't see um, that, that i have a problem with because the damage of kids may not realize it at that age when it happens to them but if you've ever talked to people that were seduced by adults when they were adolescents, it fucks them up in a really, really deep way. And the thing that gets me, I was reading about this recently, is this idea of any time, like if a, if a male teacher seduces a, a yeah. female uh, student, then it's like, oh, that's the worst thing. If a female teacher seduces a male su- student, high fives all around. Yeah. And it's like, I'm, I don't think that's correct. You know, if it had been done well, like like Election to me is, oh, yeah. is a movie that did it well because it was it it wasn't. Yeah, it was irreverent in the way that it handled it, but 
there were consequences for it and and the humor the characters were real it was anchored to something that felt real and it felt like there was a, a humanity to it oh yeah whereas adam sandler's movies there's like no humanity to them it's not anymore just like not anymore there's just a feeling of he's surrounded by people that don't tell him this is fucking awful yeah no not since i think spanglish has there been a, a an adam sandler film that really and that's not even that good of a movie but there's at least some real human characterization and then of course punch drunk love could probably fit into one of these categories that we're yeah. talking about but I, mean, I think because those are movies that he didn't produce yeah there's that and it just fascinates me. It, you know what? I'm sorry. Funny People, which he also didn't... Pr he might have produced it, but he didn't write it or anything yes, like that. there's a feeling that he's not at the helm. It's like when you get the feeling that he's at the helm, it's like you feel like you're dealing with a, a somebody that's high or something that's like... Or a 13-year-old who wrote a movie. And it just... Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I try... I really try not to be judgmental of actors because... Especially actors that are stars because... You do. You live a certain lifestyle now, and maybe you want to keep that going. So, whether you should live that lifestyle is another matter. But, um, but part of me is like, you worked with P.T. Anderson, with Spanglish. You worked with uh, James L. Brooks. With did nothing um, rub off. Did nothing <laughs> rub off. Even Judd Apatow, who yeah. was a, fr a fairly crass uh, comedy guy. But there's a smart behind his crassness. Yes. Yeah. And and nothing, none of that ignited in you a sense yes. to do more. It, there's a, there, I get a feel of such condescension towards the audience and oh, yeah. the stuff that Adam Sandler produces. Like he has no respect for the intelligence of the people that that pay to see his movies. And may, you know maybe he knows them better than I do, but um, that makes me angry. It does. Jack and Jill, you managed to <laughs> you managed to actually dumb down a nursery rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> the tagline for his movie should be what are you not going to see it that, that seems what else are you doing yeah asshole that seems to be the general tone um so i will move on uh real quick to um i'll move on to this and then we'll we'll talk about a couple of movies that, that you that you talked about so among the uh the mental illnesses and disorders that are being put out there again talking about something that sort of re somewhat recently has been thrown out is uh, bipolar disorder mm -hmm. um, or previously called manic depressive when when characters were diagnosed in like the 70s and, and 80s and that sort of thing um, and that that's one that I think because of the you know night and day nature uh, of it when simplified um, I think you know you get actors playing you know it turning in good performances i saw silver, silver linings playbook i thought bradley cooper very much deserved that nomination for best actor did you see silver linings playbook i did and i loved the first half of the movie and then i felt like the the whole mental illness thing was just dropped and it became about the love story loved her character yeah loved her character loved her outbursts love you know um and i thought it was a great movie but i didn't think it was um I think it was a little over. Yeah. There's some convenience in there. Yeah, there yeah. just there was it lost its organic feel yeah. to me. Oh, and overhyped, no question about it. I'm I'm a big fan of the movie, but when you when you nominate it for picture director, all four acting categories, editing, mm -hmm. screenplay, just yeah, you're gonna get some backlash, and you might be setting yourself from 
yourself up for some expectations that maybe you're not fulfilling. But uh, but yeah, but I still I still liked it, and I thought the performances were great she's all amazing. around. And she's so sexy; she makes me want to get yelled at by her. <laughs> that scene on the sidewalk, I was like, oh my god, she's even sexy when she's snapping at people. Um. So I did want to talk about, and oddly enough, I mentioned that this is a recent thing. Of course, first movie I, I talk about is going to be from the 70s, and it's uh, A Woman Under the Influence. I have it recorded, and I haven't watched it yet. I think you'll love that one as well. Yeah. Oddly enough, A Woman Under the Influence was the companion film for my More Than One Lesson about Take Shelter. So, um, And it's got Jenna Rollins, and it's John Cassavetes, who wrote and directed, and he's one of my favorite directors. And that's one where... Don't ruin anything for me. I'll try not to. His his films tend not to be ruinable, but I'll try. But I'll just talk about her performance and the just nature of the character is that she is so the willingness of John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins to make a character that is genuinely annoying to the audience, although not nece- although it's not necessarily her fault because of you know brain chemistry and that sort of thing. And not and not trying and they're not holding back. You talk about commitment; mm-hmm. they're not holding back. They're like, we're going to explore this thing, and if people get bothered by it, so be it. That's the character. Then that's the nature of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not all, well, I'm I'm a little goofy here, and I'm a little right. straight there, but I'm kind of charming, really. I mean, it is a hard movie to watch, and it is a hard performance to watch. Um, and it's so tragic, but it's also so lovely, and it's, oh... It's just such a wonderful depiction of marriage in general, because uh, Peter Falk's in it as her husband, um, but also just mental illness, because I feel like that's what it looks like. It's m- emotionally messy. It cannot be summed up easily, even though her character is clearly bipolar. Um, it can't be summed up easily. It can't be treated you know, with a snap of the fingers. Mm-hmm. It's just a... Man, it's just a just a gorgeous film. If you were speaking of Cassavetes, I think it was a Cassavetes movie where uh, Alan Arkin drinks the shot of the anchovy liqueur and tries to not spit it out. I do not remember that at all. That doesn't sound. Familiar. I, th- I haven't seen I all think of his films. It's a Cassavetes movie. Um, it is one of the f- greatest spit takes ever because he tries to not spit it out. Right. He doesn't want to insult the person that gave him. Okay. I, in fact, I think it's a Peter Falk pouring this um, highly prized. Um, maybe it's not Peter Falk, but I know it's definitely Alan Arkin who is trying not to spit out this thing. But it is, it's such a genius comedic moment. I do like Alan Arkin a lot, and uh, and he's somebody who I think has been sort of maybe pigeonholed uh, as an actor. But when you look at uh, like wait till wait until dark or something like that, you realize oh he could do a lot of different things. But now he's just kind of the crotchety grandpa. There's, but there's one movie I want to talk about okay. before, before we finish up because I think it's the finest example of untreated alcoholism okay. ever in movies, and it's There Will Be Blood. Okay. It and it's funny because it's not about necessarily his drinking, right? But the the wreckage of alcoholism it perfectly portrays the emptiness the anger and the wreckage of alcoholism and the inability for external things to fill that void doesn't matter how much money he has he's still he's still angry and that's a film that is about so much stuff emotionally socially it's one that I, I and, and listeners know that I have a hard time saying I've got it 
with that movie. And there's a handful of movies where I feel like, you know what? Anything I come up with about this movie as far as analysis, that's not going to keep me from looking into it and thinking about it, but anything I come up with, I'm going to say is maybe peeling back two out of 48 layers, mm-hmm. and there will be blood as one of them. And and I th- and it wouldn't and that's the thing because the film does not is not overtly like you said not overtly about alcoholism, um, but P.T. Anderson being who he is, I could see that being a part or and Daniel Day Lewis being who he is. I could see them layering that on of just what makes this character capable emotionally of doing these things, right? And and just being kind of what would you call that? I can't quite think of the word, but I'm sorry, you're going to say something. I was going to say that it it is about alcoholism. It's it's not addressed. His mm-hmm. alcoholism, nobody talks to him about his drinking. So right. in that sense, the movie, there aren't words about your drinking and your alcoholism and stuff like that. But it his alcoholism is what drives that, his addiction, mm-hmm. that emptiness, that need to, to, to fill things in. And it's done in such... A cinematic but organic way. I've never seen a movie or a performance that is so big but doesn't ever lose its reality. It's, I think it's the, the greatest acting performance in film ever. Hmm. And, and I, I love that performance. I think it's amazing. And I think, I think it seems somehow crass to say he deserved that best actor because it almost feels like, well, he deserves... Do they have an Oscar for Best Actor of the Decade? Because I think he deserves that, too. I love that performance. I think it's astounding. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's one of those few instances where, where the Oscars get it right. Uh, where the, That was a good year for the, for the Oscars. No Country for Old Men won Best Picture. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, and so... Um, but if you want to know addiction untreated... Looks like what that. What it looks like, especially if the person is, quote-unquote, high-functioning, mm-hmm. that's... Such a, and then, you know, a little cinematic at the end with the bowling alley. Scene. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of where it will head with a high functioning alcoholic, that is such a. Out of curiosity, I've always wondered what is the. Because I, I, I think I know what it means, but I'm not 100%. High functioning, what does that mean to you? You keep your job, you're able to still okay. generate income coming in. Okay. Um, so your, your basic necessities are still being covered. Okay. Um, maybe even you're you've still got social status. Okay. But you are abusing people around you. You're um, okay. ru- ruining your health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, because I always use the term to describe Hunter S. Thompson. Yes, he's who, a perfect example of you know, high functioning. Okay. Right. Not up until, lose, you don't lose your stuff. Okay. All right. Yeah, you don't wind up homeless uh, on exactly. the street or anything exactly. like that. Uh, of course, Hunter S. Thompson eventually wound up killing himself. So. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe we all shouldn't have uh, prized him the way. Maybe he wasn't a delightful eccentric. Maybe he needed help. But that's that's my own personal thing. Um, so, uh, real quick, you did bring a couple of movies to the table yourself. One was Perks of Being a Wallflower, which I have not seen. Uh, and what was it about? I that? think then me talking about it would would um, ruin it. You can speak in vagaries. It's it's perfectly fine. Um, I felt like the kid. I felt manipulated by the presentation of the kid he just felt a little too um we want you to love this kid oh okay i would love the kid i would love to have seen the kid doing some type of acting out some type of it just felt like he he, he was just too doe-eyed and Uh just too please love this character and when people present it 
It's like when somebody sings a romantic song and you know that they think their voice sounds romantic. It just <laughs> makes me hate it. Yeah. It's, and that's how I felt about that character was it just felt I felt manipulated by the director instead of letting me come to my own decision about that kid being lovable. That is one of my biggest complaints about any kind of uh, movie because it happens a lot is well, this person's the main character. So we cannot they can't have any kind of flaws unless maybe some kind of noble flaw, like they love their family too much or something. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to see somebody returning a wallet in the in the first fifteen minutes. I want to see them <laughs> taking a wallet because they're afraid. Yeah, that's what that's what's going to make me love a character, and then them fighting that part of themselves. Yeah. that's where I don't want to go see the movies about. I'm even fine with them doing the right thing. Just give them what most of us have, which is a little moment, of like you know. The money in this wallet would yes. really solve some problems for yes. me, you know. And even if it's just like, no, that's not the right thing. Just have the moment, just yeah. the brief, the brief moment. It's uh, it's what I uh, have uh, recently started calling uh, Aaron Brockovich syndrome, which is that film is all about how awesome this character is to the point that every other character will go against their own interest because they read the script and realized she's the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and so another movie that you brought up and I'm happy that you did uh, bef- before we started recording was The Great Santini mm-hmm. a film that not enough people have seen and I in my love of Robert Duvall I saw it uh, and thought it was amazing and there is so much going on there's a character a very forceful character that is hard to I won't say diagnose but he's hard to categorize yeah because he is domineering I'm not sure if I would go so far as say he was he's abusive, he's tyrannical, oh, but he's maybe abusive. that's maybe that's yeah, inherently he's bouncing abusive. the basketball off his kid's head. That's yeah, that's, that's abusive. abusive. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I forgot about that yeah. part, and now I remember it pretty for, pretty. Vividly. I think about it every time I pick up a basketball. <laughs> I swear to God, <laughs> and just see how much it's like. All right, I'm going to test the test my friendships and just start doing yeah. this. Yeah, and that's, but that but the weird thing is like. If asked, that character would definitely say, "Well, of course, I love my family." Yeah, and and it's it's a very it's a very thinks, strange character. He thinks his way of loving his family is to make them strong, to put them through, yeah. to make them disciplined. Yeah, and there is a there is a form of love that may you know wanting to be strong because the world will hurt you exactly. But then, as opposed to, I need to make you strong because I'm going to hurt you. Yeah. And you need to be ready for me. Exactly. I, and I think that that's an, a great example of uh, a mental illness where people have a rage in themselves that they can't feel. And so they camouflage their mistreating of other people as I'm helping this person. Uh, a really common thing, I had Fred Stoller on my podcast, and his mom was just a complete joy killer. and And I think... That's another really common thing that parents do is they they can't experience joy in their own life. So when they see their kid expressing it, they have this need to snuff it out. But they tell themselves, I'm snuffing it out because I don't want him to be disappointed when he gets out into the world. Because that parent thinks they're normal. Their yeah. kid's up too high and they need, need to bring yeah. their kids down. But in reality, they're below normal in terms of how much joy they experience. And they're bringing their kid down from normal into the basement with them. In my least favorite movie of last year called Struck by Lightning... Um, there is one good element to it, and that is um, Allison Janney, who's an actress I love, and she does a good job. But she's this, she's a, I'm not even go, so, I wouldn't go so far as say a high functioning alcoholic. She's mm. functioning, but uh, barely. Um, and her son is very talented, and he's probably going to go places, and so she actually sabotages him. 
as far as getting accepted to a certain college because she says, I don't want you to realize, you know, when you go, it's like when you go up so high, I don't want you to fall even further and that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's really one of the most, one of the only affecting part of that parts of that film, a film that is just misguided in so many ways that it's, uh, I don't often say I hate a movie. I hate that movie. Yeah, but uh, what was the name of it? Struck by Lightning, available yeah. on Netflix. Watch Instant yeah. if you want to. If this ring endorsement makes you want to see it, but uh, all right, I don't think anybody can consistently make me hate movies as much as Oliver Stone's maybe last five movies. Let's see here. Okay, you know what? Uh, I was surprised by W. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. I take it back. I think that. I think that's. That movie might be the might be the exception to the, to the last five, but uh, Savages, that, I I hated that movie. I it was like, what did you just did you cast anywhere outside of a Venice coffee shop <laughs> for these pretty people? And it was just everybody trying so hard to be cool, and it just I hated. Yeah, I hated that. Benicio movie. del Toro is the one good part of that movie. Yes, and what a great story wasted on this person who this director who wanted to make it cool. And there's a bit of di- there's a bit of dialogue that I go back and forth with my friend, and every once in a while we'll just repeat this to our, to each other. A bit of narration, where uh, the uh, I do not remember the name of the the actress, the girl, but uh, she's the one narrating the film. Yes, and she uh, is talking about Taylor Kitsch, who is uh, dealing with I think uh, PTSD, something that we do not necessarily did not talk about in this film. Mm-hmm. But uh, seek out Black Snake Moan in the best years of our lives. Anyway, um, and that he uh, when when the two of them have sex. Uh, he's he's clearly trying to like get some demons out, and so he. Oh, I don't even want to repeat it. He doesn't have orgasms. He has wargasms. Ugh. That's a bit of dialogue that was left in a film. It's <laughs> the, the acting in that was just so non-existent. It felt like I was waiting for the scene director from acting one on one to come in and say cut. Um, yeah. It, it was just there was not they didn't bring anything there was like no subtext to it it was just it was uh that movie made me angry a film without subtext that is the savage that is pardon me savages yeah. the savages with laura Great lindy philip Seymour hoffman wonderful where film. she pets the dog while she's getting laid <laughs> that yeah that was a great that's movie. a good movie um okay so as as we always should we will end this by bashing savages um <laughs> And I will uh, let everyone know, I will repeat, uh, seek out that premium episode with Bill Dwyer, good stuff, uh, and then uh, you can go to battleshipretention.com and get uh, various reviews of uh, new movies and uh, home video, and you can find our various other uh, podcasts in the fleet, and you can listen, uh, eagle-eared listeners can hear uh, our buddy uh, Paul Gilmartin there at the end. Um, and so you can go to battleshipretention.com for that. You can email me, Tyler, at battleshipretention.com, or David, David, at battleshipretention.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I think that's about it. Paul, where can people find you online? Uh, they can go to uh, mentalpod.com. That's the website for my podcast. And uh, that's just the best place best okay. place to, to go. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at mentalpod. And... Um, yeah, anything else you can probably get through the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. All right. And thank you guys for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.